Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Today, we're going to do some books and business, but it's not books and business. It's just book and business. Are you okay with that, Tim? Do I get a choice in the matter? No, you don't. (laughs) What we're going to do today, we're going to talk about the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis. What we're going to try and do, this is not going to be a complete walkthrough of the book. We're actually just going to focus on chapter one in this podcast. What we'd like to call it is a primer to the abolition of man. So hopefully we're just going to try and kind of put the water out on the ground and let it soak in and irrigate your minds a little bit, and hopefully you come to some good thoughts on this book with us. Maybe they can grow something. Mm. Mm. That is wonderful. Another disclaimer, we might say things that are incorrect because we're all trying to figure out what Lewis says in this book too. So if you're like, hey, they're wrong, then why don't you email us and tell us we're wrong? Okay, that's great. So Mm. with that, (laughs) let's just jump right on in. So the abolition of man It's a book written by C.S. Lewis, and this book is kind of a companion to the Space Trilogy. What C.S. Lewis liked to do was he liked to pose an idea in a more written official form, like an essay or perhaps a radio broadcast, and then what he would do- Two points. Two points. And then what he would do is he would depict that idea in a story format, and so the Space Trilogy is the companion to the abolition of man, so if you're- Reading one without the other, you really need to pick up the other half of this idea. So let's jump into chapter one. What, what is chapter one about? The broader message of the whole book is there's a lot about education going on here. So he's going to start off talking about a, a thing he's going to call the green book, and it's, a, it's an English grammar book. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't tell the names of the authors. He, he says, I'm going to refer to these two guys as Gaish and Titius. And uh, him, he's going to call this grammar book the Green Book. And so this book is supposed to be a book for grade school children to learn grammar. The problem that Lewis has with it is it does less teaching about grammar and more teaching that there's no such thing as objective values. And so he has a little bit of an issue with it. So he starts off with this illustration that will help you um, if we understand it. There's this waterfall that's very famous in a story by Coleridge. And so he, he quotes part of it. I'm just going to read a very short part of it. He says, you remember that there were two tourists present who viewed this waterfall. The one called the waterfall sublime and the other one called the waterfall pretty. And Coleridge mentally endorsed the first judgment and he rejected the second with disgust. That's a pretty famous uh, scene from a writing by Coleridge. And the idea of sublime there is an older way of talking about that's beautiful and there's like some attendant majesty to it, that sort of a thing. Gaius and Titius make the following comment, Lewis says. When the man says, this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. But actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but rather a remark about his own feelings. He was really saying, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime. Or, more briefly, I have sublime feelings. What Lewis says is, 
This is not actually teaching these students English grammar. It's actually teaching them to not believe in objective values. So you look at the waterfall and a person makes a judgment about that waterfall. They say, wow, this waterfall is beautiful. And what these two English grammarians are saying is, no, 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 there's no such thing as that. When they say that, what they mean is I'm having beautiful feelings. So that's where he starts the book. And he goes on to tear this argument to shreds by saying, if that's really true, if there's nothing objectively true out there, then every time you make a statement of value, you're actually just talking about your feelings. He says, if that's really true, then if you looked at someone who you didn't like and said, you're contemptible, you'd actually have to admit that you're just saying, well, you're not contemptible. There's nothing objective about that. I just have contemptible feelings right now. And so that's kind of the way he destructs that argument. But his point is that all through this grammar book, it's not actually teaching much about English grammar. It's actually just purveying a worldview that doesn't think there's any objective meaning or objective value. Wow. So like English is it important and who you have for an English professor is important. It is. It is. Sometimes it's funny. You, you think you're teaching one subject, but your worldview always shows through. And so these, these two grammarians, in a sense, they were badly discipling their little pupils to think something about the world. And the pupils, what did they think? And Lewis says this, he says, they think they're just getting grammar, <laughs> grammar teaching, and it was nothing of the sort. They were really getting bad philosophy. Yep. Yeah. Would this, would this also be true of our Greek and Hebrew professors, like our English professors? Most would their definitely. Yes. I, I on a regular <laughs> Carter on, on a regular basis I I teach <laughs> my worldview but it's kind of nice because I teach Hebrew so it's kind of easy to trans translate through a passage and then there's the worldview right there inherent in the text so so that's kind of the first big point that Lewis is trying to get us to consider is in that story are Coleridge and the tourists saying something about themselves. They're expressing their feelings through the language, or are they saying something objectively that is true of that waterfall? Now, I was implying something, and I just want to state it clearly and explicitly. When you send, say, your child to a community college to get their gen eds out of the way, for example, getting their English out of the way and done, you are teaching, they are being taught more than just English. In fact, a lot of times they're being taught a false worldview, an unbiblical worldview and false philosophy. And so you need to think seriously about that when you're just pounding through your gen eds through some whatever institution, their worldview is implicit through that education. Yeah, I would totally agree. And, and this is the big issue. I think sometimes we look at a, at a university or something and we say, man, look at that. They're trying to mislead youth. And they often are. But I think the bigger point here is that what you think about reality always comes through when you're teaching. And so you might only be teaching grammar or English or whatever it is, but you can't not speak from your worldview. Exactly. So there's no way. So like just being around you is a way that you're being discipled. And if you're not aware of that, that's right. Remember, we do you remember amusing ourselves to death? Where Neil Postman, he's all down on like entertainment and all that, and, and the visual arts are a problem. And we were talking about it later, and it's not that you can never watch TV, but what do you have to do? You have to know what's going on and critically a, a, like be aware of it. Right. And so, like, if you're not aware that a worldview is always being purveyed, it's it's going to cause you problems. Right. It's going to influence you. 
that's the first example he uses is that writing from Coleridge. He then brings up this other writing, which is actually an advertisement for this adventure trip, a cruise. And he uses that to kind of get into this idea of sentiment. And Tim, you really wanted to touch on this, right? Yeah, I do want to talk about that. There's this one quote that's really important. I want to just read it to you. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. Lewis is is uh, speaking about an advertisement, and in the Green Book, they evaluate this advertisement not for its uh, grammatical or poetic um, favor or its poor poetry, but rather uh, what they do is they they chop down the uh, sentiments. And they they say this is a bad advertisement because they don't want the young person to fall prey to the propaganda of the advertisement. So in fact, what they have done, they haven't really taught anything about grammar. What they've done is they taught something about philosophy. They have chopped down the jungle of the sentiment, but instead what they need to do is they need to irrigate the desert of proper sentiments, of proper emotions, of proper affections. So that's why this is such an important uh, quote, and it has so many biblical, um, I could go to the Bible like all over the place because it has to do with emotions. It has to do with affections. It has to do with the fear of the Lord. It has to do with the love of the Lord. And we do this all the time too. We tell people, don't feel. That's actually unbiblical. They're going to feel. We need to teach them how to feel. We need to teach them, don't fear. You're right. Do not fear. But then these other times we say, you need to fear. And then we don't teach them how to fear biblically. We say love, and then we say don't love. We need to teach them how to love biblically. Okay, when I'm saying how to fear, when I'm saying how to love, what I'm explaining, what I'm, what, I, what we're trying to do there is what Lewis is talking about with irrigating deserts. We're watering the desert. We're feeding the soul and and trying to properly order their loves. Anyway, what do you what are you guys thinking? It's like when you say. Don't, 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 don't. But then you never tell them what the right thing to do is. Right. And that's almost be like the watering that. the desert. Yeah. Yep. And so uh. then what Lewis is going to transition into is using both of those examples, the example of Coleridge and the cataract, the waterfall, and this advertisement, he's going to describe people that don't have the right sentiment because they don't understand objective value. And he calls these types of people very specific terms. They are the urban blockhead and the trousered ape. And so uh, pose a question to the table. What are urban blockheads and what are trousered apes? I'll, I'll jump in, I guess. I like the, the trousered ape is the person that is an animal but they have pants on. They're a trousered, they're a trousered ape. Are you talking about freshmen at college? <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of times it's an individual that's ruled by their base appetites, their, their passions. Uh, we would use maybe the word the emotions, but um, it's um, within the study of the emotions, this person is ruled by their desires and thus they're like an animal. You know, when, when you go out hunting and you're, there's a deer out there and then, you know, you shoot at the deer, bang, what does the thing do? Well, a lot of times it just runs around 
and sometimes it just even runs back and forth or whatever. Like it doesn't know where to go or what to do. And, and what is that animal being ruled by its mind? No, by its appetites, by its fear. And, and that's what's driving it. It's not the intellect. It's not the thinking. Um, and so the trousered ape, what is the trousered ape? It's the person that's very animalistic and they're ruled by their passions, by their desires. And so the urban blockhead then would be somewhat of the opposite of that. Someone who's also not properly ordered, but someone that is not necessarily, it's, it's someone with all the trees cut down to use the illustration. It's, there, there's no sentiment. It's just like this kind of robotic type of a person. You guys, would that kind of be the way of describing it? Yeah, that's how I would uh, define the urban blockhead. They're a blockhead. They're an idiot. Uh, I'm sorry, they're not an idiot. They're they're an intellectual where reason rules. And, and so they have chopped down the forest and thus they don't have any properly... Um, uh, properly watered, <laughs> properly irrigated sentiments. You know, Lewis kind of talks about this right after his quote about the uh, jungles and the deserts. I'm just going to read a, a portion of it. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. Oh, See, the hmm. chopping down of the forest isn't going to work. You have to also inculcate or water or irrigate the desert just sentiments. Then he say, states further... This is where the urban blockhead and the trousered ape kind of become one and the same person a little bit. Um, he states, by starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. You see, even the urban blockhead, by denying the emotion and the feelings, in truth, what happens is that he ends up being still ruled by them. Uh, Lewis continues, for famous, famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. I can't, I mean, I've seen men, or really they're boys, but, you know, they're the size of men, and they are ruled by their desires, okay, actually they're not ruled by desires, they, they have this persona and this perception of being tough and, uh, uh, being mentally in control of their animalistic desires. But really what ends up happening when you start peeling back the layers and getting to know them is that, no, they're not. There's still just that, there's that animal within them that's that's craving and desiring um, uh, the unjust and unholy things. You know, it's interesting. You were just saying, you, you brought up the irrigating the deserts and cutting down the forest quote again. And it made me think that uh, the one of these people they're trying to pull out any silly sentiment that the modern world knows better than, you know, all the, just get rid of all that. So you're not some silly old backward mythical, mystically or myth driven person. Um, but they're not putting anything in its place. And it makes me think about when Paul talks about what happened when you got saved is you both put off an old nature, but then it wasn't that there's was nothing in its place. There was a new nature that was added. And then how does he instruct us in Ephesians 4 and 5 going forward? Since that's what happened to you in the past, you now need to put off old uh, activities in your life and put on the new activities of the new man. So you can't do the one without the other. And it's almost like right. one of these characters is doing one uh, and the other is not actually doing the other. Which interestingly enough, these characters, I think you see these characters in the space trilogy 
So if you think about the trousered ape, Tim, you said that's like someone living according to their like base passions. The space trilogy is... Oh, sorry. Yeah. So the space trilogy is the novel, the three part novels that Charlie mentioned at the beginning of the episode um, where he's taking Lewis is taking these themes and he's like playing it out in a story. And in the third of those books called That Hideous Strength, there's this uh, character um, and she is fully ruled by her passions. I would say like she's just living according to her desires all the time. And that would make me think of the the trousered ape. Charlie, are any any characters come to mind for like the urban blockhead for you or? Or another trouser ape character. That's that's where I knew that this was happening when I read through the space trilogy, but I I didn't have enough footing underneath of me to be like, oh yeah, that guy's. But mm-hmm. for the listener, read Abolition, and then read the space trilogy, and you might see some of these themes coming up in some of the main characters, even with uh, in in that hideous strength, some of the main characters kind of grappling with this idea of being conditioned and in, in the propaganda and, and how it affects people and the way they look at truth. Yeah. And there's even not to give anything away, but there's one character who he's like the cutting down of the desert. He knows emotion. He thinks emotions are fake and they're false and they're just chemical events going on in his brain. So he's like running away from the situation and he's experiencing great fear. And he just keeps telling himself, this is just a chemical reaction in my head. It's nothing to think about. It's, I'm going to die eventually anyway. So I don't need to be concerned and I just need to be calm and rational and enlightened. Uh, and he's almost like this urban blockhead character a little bit. So, Okay. So as he's describing these characters, as he's describing that really the process that is intentionally or unintentionally happening as a result of this English teaching, he eventually comes to this conclusion and he describes men that are affected by this philosophy as men without chests. He describes them as as men without chests. And what he's getting to is this idea that they no longer are human once you've removed the objective value that demands a proper ordered affection as a, as a wordy, like, like there's a lot of, you know, I can kind of taste all those words just spewing out of the mouth there. Mm, so let's, good. let's talk about that. Mm, yes. What does it mean? What, what is Lewis trying to get to with this idea of men without chests? I've read through uh, abolition of man on several occasions with young men trying to explain to them uh, through this writing what the Bible teaches about the emotions. And the men without chests um, analogy, uh, I think, illustrates it beautifully. Because what you have is is the, the head of the person, and then you have the belly of the person. Okay, the trousered ape is the person that's ruled by the belly. Lewis writes in near the end of the chapter, without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. The animal organism is the belly. And if the person has not trained their emotions, then their belly overrules their mind and they're an animal. They're a trousered ape. He uses the illustration of a man in battle. And when the bombs start flying, the animalistic man starts running around like a chicken with his head chopped off. And obviously he's going to get shot. So what is it that the um, military teaches them to do is, hey, you need to think, okay? Think about it. You've got to use your head, okay, to control your animalistic desires. Well, and he's going to hit on that idea 
specifically not only in chapter one, but in chapter two. And when, when a soldier is being shot at and they need to think by what virtue are they demanded to hold their ground and to defend its honor. Yeah, but that's building into the other aspect of it. Well, the whole problem that Lewis is seeing is that if you take out objective value, if if, if I'm going to say, well, it's honorable for a soldier to fight for his country, so when he gets shot at, he doesn't run away. He has to stand his ground because that's honorable. And then you go back to the Green Book. Well, no, no, no. That's not actually honorable. He just feels like it's honorable. And you take the objective value that demands a response away. Right. The soldier can't think straight. The only thing he has left is his emotion, which is improperly ordered. And he's going to run away because he doesn't want to die for something that's not worth it. Right. So what's motivating that individual? His flesh. Okay. But... (laughs) It's not the base animalistic desires. That's the head. And so this is why, you know, I've read abolition, especially this first chapter, I don't know, five plus times, okay? And it was probably around the fifth time that I finally started to get this second point, which is what you're building into. You have the base animalistic desire individual, okay, that's ruled by his emotions, and he's running around like a chicken with his head chopped off. Then you got the urban blockhead, and what's he ruled by? Reason. And he knows he can't run around like a chicken with his head chopped off because he'll get shot. But then he reasons through this thing, oh, I'm still going to get killed. So what do I need to do? I need to not be part of this war. So what is it? What is it that that um, is a properly arranged emotion, a properly arranged affection? And so this is, gets into biblical, biblical emotions and biblical affections is that it's not just the suppression of the feelings. And it's not just the rule of the intellect. It's the emotion through the intellect, where it's the heart, it's the chest. That's why he speaks of this magnanimity of the chest. Here, I'm going to read a section. The head rules the belly through the chest. The seat, as Alanis tells us, of magnanimity, of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. Do you understand that? Emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. And it's the same thing with biblical Christianity. When we tell our young people, don't feel, and then we tell them, we're, we're basically just appealing to their intellect. But what we need to tell them is you need to think, and then you need to let that thinking affect you. It has to do with our the way we worship the Lord. It has to do with, I'm going to use music just as an illustration. If you're just feeling in your worship, that's the base animalistic desires. That's it. Your, your music, your worship, it needs to, there has to be something going on in your head. There needs to be uh, some truth that you've seen for the first time, or if it's something that you've heard before, a truth that enlightens you again, and then you let that affect you. And what does that foster in you? A love for God, a fear of God. The very last couple statements of this chapter, he says, we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We tell a Christian, you can't feel, but then we want you to love God. It doesn't make sense, okay? And we're not really posing all of the 
the answers here. We're just trying to get the discussion started. He says, we laugh at honor and we are shocked to find traitors in our midst. That's a great statement. And I question whether or not I'd read the very last one, but it's so good. We castrate oh my word. and bid the geldings be fruitful. <laughs> now you just figure that one out, okay? Talk to your parents. <laughs> or Dr. Little. There you go. <laughs> so again, he's, he's establishing that once you take away the objective value, you cannot have properly ordered sentiments. There's one other statement Lewis makes that actually I think ties this whole thing together. He says this, he says, until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believe the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could either be congruous or incongruous to it. Believed in fact that objects did not merely receive, but could merit our approval or disapproval our reverence, or our contempt. And there's an element here that goes toward the concept of worship. So if there's no objective truth, then you just, you're just you awash in your emotions. But what Lewis is saying is there is objective truth, and that objective truth is God. Now, he's, he's trying to do this from a more philosophical standpoint. So Lewis, as he tries to build the case for this idea in Abolition of Man, He's doing it, as you just said, he's doing it philosophically, and he's uniquely doing it from a position that's not purely Christian. He he comes up with this idea of objective value, he calls it the Tao, and he's, he's kind of blending all of these different religious worldviews that hold to objective realities together. We're not going to try and do that. We're going to try and look at these ideas from a distinctly Christian worldview. And so what we want to do is we want to close this off by thinking about those two really big ideas from a biblical standpoint. One of them being the affections and properly ordered affections, and the other one being objective truth. And so let's start. Tim, you're going to start with the emotions, correct? Yeah, let's talk about emotions. In Deuteronomy chapters 5 and 6, we have the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord, and I'd like for us to reflect upon what it means to love the Lord. When we think of love, we think of a feeling, but the love of the Lord is actually something that you have to do, like intellectually. How often do you have a feeling of love for the Lord? So uh, I'm just going to rehearse a little bit the fear of the Lord. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the children of Israel were around Uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and the mountain was literally lit up on fire, and they were scared. They had reason to be scared because God had lit the mountain up on fire. Uh, And and, uh, so they're scared, and then God, he tells them, if only they had such a heart to fear me and keep all my commands always so that they and their children would, would prosper forever. So here they're scared, and what does the Lord say is the problem? The problem is that they don't fear him. So there's two different types of fear. Similarly, there's two different kinds of love. But let's talk about the fear first. You have a child that's terrified in the night. They're scared and they don't process their surroundings coherently. And uh, they scream out in terror. That's one kind of fear. When we think of fear, that's usually what we think of. But there's another aspect of fear where There is a being, that being is powerful, that being is strong, that being can destroy me, that being has even lit a mountain up on fire, and at any moment that being could take some of that fire and utterly consume me, and I would be extinguished from this earth for forever. But I know also that that being is a a God of love, 
and he loves me and he's forgiven me. And I know that he won't exercise that power, that authority. Lewis actually uses this imagery in the Chronicles of Narnia when he pictures Aslan as a lion. He is a lion. He is not a safe lion. He's a consuming lion. He can kill you, but because he's good, he won't. That fosters that concept of the fear of the Lord. Now let's carry that over to the second emotion, love. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we have here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Here, the children of Israel are commanded to love God. How does that work? How do we go about loving him? It starts in the mind. You have to process something intellectually, recognizing who God is and then what he's perhaps done for you. Whatever it is that creates that, fosters that, that love for God, it's not based upon something um, in your tummy, something that's animalistic, something like a fear or terror. No, it's based upon something that you know. And this is the beginning of a true love of God, is that something that you know, then it doesn't stop there though, it proceeds down to your heart to your chest. And that's where that love truly comes from. It's not something that's intellectual only, but it's actually implanted in your very being. Um, when I sing uh, a, a good song, a good Christian song that has lyrics that are rich, that renew my mind, and then the, the uh, accompanying melody, it, it accentuates the doctrinal truth that's being taught, then my, my heart is refreshed. My my uh, love for God increases. That's the experience. And so many people want that experience, but they don't realize that it actually first comes through the heart or through the head. Now, I'm going to build into a, a second aspect. For a long time, I believed all of this with Lewis, but what Lewis is arguing is, is that that's just the beginning. It then, as it's implanted into the heart, it's from the heart that you... Um, are undefeatable. Maybe I could put it that way. When you're in the moment of trial, just knowing who God is, that's not going to get you through it. It's actually loving God. That's uh, that love for the Lord, that fear of Him. That's what makes the um, the trials in this world just vanish and they become nothing, because you love the Lord. Lewis uses the illustration of a military situation where the bombs are falling. And he says the man who just mentally knows is going to falter because the bombs are falling and they're going to get scared. And then they're going to start thinking through logically, well, this isn't going to end well. I'm going to die. But the man who has rightly ordered sentiments, who has a rightly ordered affections, that individual will stay in that bunker. He will continue fighting to the very end. Why? It's his love that presses, uh, that, that keeps him fighting. Similarly, in the Christian life, what is it that's going to help you to um, push back against the peer pressure that you're faced? What's going to help you and strengthen you when a loved one passes away? These thoughts of doubt start creeping in of the goodness of God. What's going to help you um, press through and and um, accomplish the objectives that you have to accomplish. Um, the love of God is what drives us. The love of God is what constrains us. And so this is what uh, Lewis is talking about, rightly ordered affections. 
We need to love the Lord. How do we do that? We go about processing through who God is and then letting that affect us, internalizing it into our hearts. Then as it's internalized into our hearts, it becomes who we are. When the time of trial then comes, we are then equipped to to, uh, persevere and to endure through that time of trial. So we begin with the question of objective value. That's where Lewis took us with Coleridge's waterfall. And what's interesting is that when you get rid of objective value and say there's no such thing out there that could have any objective worth or truth, then other things begin to fall apart in life. And so Lewis, is that's what he's doing in abolition. He's showing that if you drop objective value, you lose the value, the objective truth that merits right, proper affections and virtues and responses inside of you. Romans 1.18 says, this is where uh, Paul begins his ex- explanation of the gospel. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what do those ungodly and unrighteous people do? It says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So these are people who know there's truth, but deny that there's truth. Now it goes on to say, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He talks about there is his invisible attributes and his eternal power and his divine nature. It says it's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And this is the the analysis that Paul gives. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. So they denied the truth and then their virtuous responses were gone. They did not have those. And it says, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here is this great flip-flop. You know God exists. You know that's the truth. And when you deny that truth, uh, it sends you down the path of futile thinking to the point where you begin to worship the glory of animals. And you kind of see that with the trousered ape and the urban blockhead. So objective truth is central to Christianity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.